Hello and welcome to Vet in the City Pet Health Chat. This is Dr. Deborah Vulgaris. Thanks for joining me, everyone. So it is already the end of August, so I hope that you have had and continue to have what is whatever is left of the summer. I hope that you've um, had a healthy and happy uh, year so far. We're already now getting into <laughs> the second half of things. So I hope that it's all going well for you and that you all are staying healthy and hopefully your pets are too. Today we're talking about a topic that is not really talked about very much. It's it's sort of an organ that is really underappreciated. Nobody really knows much about the larynx, I don't think. And if you do, you're 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 very unique. It's a very complicated structure. And I remember when I was in vet school, I remember having a really challenging time understanding the anatomy and the function, of course, but for me, anatomy was always harder than function. The anatomy, it is made up of so many different cartilages. And I remember trying to memorize them. It was really, really hard. So we're going to talk a little bit about the larynx today and something called laryngeal paralysis. And this is something that we see um, pretty commonly in older dogs, especially. We do see it in younger, um, but older large breed dogs. We see it occasionally in cats. Um, it's much more rare in cats, but we do see it in cats and we see it in other species like horses. I'm willing to, to bet that it's a possibility in any species with a larynx because the issues seem to be related to nerve nerve, um, nerve dysfunction. And I think that if you have a larynx, if there's a disease that is affecting the nerves, innervating the larynx, then you could potentially have this condition. So I think it affects a lot of species. Um, most of you are aware that you have a voice box or a larynx that sort of sits at the top of your neck and you can kind of feel it. If you, if you feel the top part of your neck just under your, your jaw, you can kind of feel that there's sort of a larger structure, um, that sits at the top of your trachea and that is the larynx or your voice box. It's also co- called the organ of phonation because that's where voice, that's where your voice comes from. That's where sound comes from. And that's why obviously it's called a voice box, right? It protects your airway. It sits at the top. It's as a cap and a protector, uh, to kind of allow air in and keep everything else out. That's its job, right? Um, and if it's not working properly, then you can have a lot of problems breathing. You can have a lot of problems with getting things in there that shouldn't be there. Um, and of course, you know, problems speaking and all of that. And so all of it's related. And so we're going to talk about this today. Um, the larynx closes. So, so I just want, you know, just to give you a little bit more about the larynx. Inside the larynx, there is, uh, your laryngeal folds. We call them your vocal cords, right? Or a dog's vocal cords, your cat's vocal cords. It's vocal cords. They're actually not cords. They're muscles. And they are kind of, um, they're innervated by nerves and they are, they open at certain times and they close at certain times. When you breathe or your dog breathes or your cat breathes, they open, they abduct, they get out of the way, creating a nice open airway. Okay. So you can imagine if there is an issue with the nerves that innervate those muscles, not opening those uh, muscles, that there could be potential problems, right? And this is really what happens with laryngeal paralysis. 
Laryngeal paralysis results when those muscles, those abductor muscles of the vocal cords cannot work properly. So that basically means that instead of opening up when you try to breathe or your dog tries to breathe, the laryngeal folds or the vocal cords simply flop weakly and flaccidly into the center of the airway. So it literally is acting as an obstruction to airflow into the lungs. Okay, so that's really what is so dangerous about it. So imagine that your dog or your cat or your horse or you are trying to breathe and you can't because there is literally no opening allowing the air to go through into your lungs. And that creates a lot of anxiety. And if you've ever had any difficulty breathing yourself, you know how scary that can be. You know, whether it be from laryngeal paralysis or something else, you know, a lot of brachycephalic breeds go through this, right? The most important thing is to keep them calm um, and keep them cool because the anxiety creates a really vicious cycle. And I've seen animals that literally, literally, and I, and I, I, I saw this where, you know, people were coming into the emergency room and it was just too late where they, their dog literally died because they were panicking at home and, you know, they couldn't breathe and they were, they were starting to panic and it got worse and worse with labored breathing, um, increased respiratory effort. You know, a lot of times you end up getting more swelling in the throat, which even makes it, makes it harder to breathe and close, closes off the airway even more. So this is one of the most important things. If you can't keep your dog calm, and we'll talk about this later on um, in the discussion. But if you can't keep your dog calm, you have to go directly to the emergency room immediately if your dog is having trouble breathing. Because what's happening, or cat or anybody, it, what's happening is that, you know, in addition to the trouble breathing, they're also making it worse with the anxiety. I've known a lot of people that didn't want to go because they, they knew how their dog was so afraid of going to the emergency room, which is totally understandable, but they were getting worse and worse with every passing moment. And they, you know, I've seen some animals that didn't get there in time. So this is a very important talk that we're having um, because it affects a lot of dogs. Lur the good news about all of this is that laryngeal paralysis does not come on suddenly um, it is something that for most dogs anyway, there are, there is a fairly long history of panting, easily getting easily tired on walks. Sometimes their voice changes. And this is really a tip off. This is something I want you to really think about and with your own dog. Okay. Loud, raspy breathing. Sometimes their bark has changed or their, the meow has changed. This is really, really important because that can tell you that we're in, in a stage here. We're at the beginning stages of laryngeal paralysis. Okay. Ideally though, the diagnosis has to be, be made before the condition progresses to an emergency. So if you see anything like that, if your dog is, you know, having or your cat is having any of the following um, signs, I really want you to go in and, you know, speak with a specialist and have them look uh, under sedation and to, to really be able to visualize the larynx. They need to see under sedation whether or not those vocal cords, those laryngeal folds are abducting, getting out of the way or not. Okay. Um, if your dog or your cat are demonstrating any of the following signs, excess panting, exercise intolerance, right? They, they, you know, start doing something and then they get tired really quickly. They want to sit down. 
that they want to stop that is exercise intolerance, okay? Their voice has changed. Their, their bark has changed. Their meow has changed. Their raspy, uh, they're making raspy breathing sounds, right? Like their, 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 their breathing is, sounds very hoarse. And I will actually attempt to imitate what raspy breathing sounds like. Um, and again, this may or may not be present. Again, all of these signs may or may not be present, but these are just very common signs, okay? Raspy breathing sounds something like this. So if you're hearing that in your dog and you were not hearing that before, you know, in, in, unless they are brachycephalic and they've always sounded like that, which is not a great thing, by the way. And if you do have a brachycephalic that sounds like that, you should consider having corrective surgery. There are some procedures, by the way, just as an aside, that can help with uh, creating less resistance to airflow. But if you're noticing that raspy sound in your older dog, <laughs> that's my, that's my, my impression. Um, you know, this is something that is cause for, for immediate responding to. So, you know, that's telling you something. Um, and of course, if there's ever any respiratory gasping or distress, that has to be dealt with absolutely immediately. That is go straight to your 24-hour ER because that is life-threatening, right? Obviously, you don't live very long without air. So, you know, you know, and as I said, when you're in that position and you're gasping for air and you're, you're panicking, it is not the time to try and figure out what to do at home. You have to go right in, okay? Now, the usual patient is an older, large breed dog. The most commonly affected breed is the Labrador Retriever. And as I said earlier, the condition can occur in cats as well, but it is rare. I came across an older paper um, that looked at laryngeal paralysis in cats. It was published in JAVMA April 2000. So it's an older paper. And they looked at 16 cats uh, between the time period of 1990 and 1999. And they looked at 16 cats, which isn't very many. So it tells you that it is rare. Um, and what they found was that 12 out of the 16 cats had bilateral um, uh, laryngeal paralysis. Basically, what that means is that both sides of their um, of their laryngeal folds, both vo both vocal cords, because we have two, both vocal cords were affected. So in cats, it's bilateral. In dogs, it can be both. Um, we do see it very commonly unilaterally, unilateral, which is better than bilateral. Um, but obviously, it can occur um, bilaterally in dogs as well. But I just thought it was interesting that in 75% of cats, it was actually bilateral. Now, I apologize in advance because I'm about to butcher the name of this, this breed of dog, the Bouvier de Flandre. Um, and I apologize again, <laughs> um, is a breed of dog that has a hereditary form of laryngeal paralysis that is able to affect, um, obviously these dogs at young ages and other breeds reported to have early onset genetic laryngeal paralysis also, um, can include Siberian Huskies, Great Pyrenees, Bull Terrier, and Dalmatians. So something to keep in mind that there is the potential that this can be something that happens earlier in life and there are certain breeds that um, may uh, be more susceptible than others. 
And we now know that laryngeal paralysis is part, only one part of a bigger neurologic issue. Laryngeal paralysis is now considered to be the first symptom of a much more pervasive neurologic weakness. And because of that, we now have a new name for this condition. It is called geriatric onset laryngeal paralysis and polyneuropathy. And basically what polyneuropathy means is that it's affecting many nerves, that there's a dysfunction or a disease that is affecting many nerves in the body. Now, this is a progressive disease, meaning that it keeps moving. It keeps getting worse and worse with time. It's very slow moving. That is, that is the good news. It tends to be very slow moving. But with time, the leg muscles, uh, will become weak and uncoordinated. Okay. And so that's something that sometimes I see. We, we see neuropathies that we think are related to this sort of polyneuropathy that is causing a, a constellation of signs. Um, and it can develop into some pretty severe mobility problems. Um, some, some very, a lot of weakness in the back legs and ataxia, incoordination. Um, you know, and we think that it, this may be a part of, uh, you know, some of the, the mobility issues that we're seeing in, in some of, at least in some of, uh, of my patients. I, I, I see that. And I think, you know, most rehab, uh, specialists are seeing a similar thing. In addition to that, in addition to weakness of the, the legs and the incoordination, uncoordinated, uh, movements in the legs and the, uh, you know, progressive weakness, we can also see that the esophagus, which most of you know, is the tube that carries food from the throat to the stomach can lose normal function. And basically it increases the risk for inhalation or aspiration of food material into the lungs. And that can become very, very dangerous. Okay. Over time, this can progress to a completely flaccid esophagus called mega esophagus. And that is condition that requires high maintenance management to prevent aspiration pneumonia and provide proper food delivery. So this is a whole bunch of nerve stuff going on, right? I mean, all of this is because of nerve dysfunction. The good news is that the average patient with acquired laryngeal paralysis is at least 10 years old and the progression of the neurologic weakness is fairly slow. So that's really good. Most patients will live their normal lifespan before uh, further neurologic weakness becomes a problem. But we can still say that Dogs with laryngeal paralysis are 21 times more likely to develop a mega esophagus than a dog without laryngeal paralysis. What causes it? There are many things that could potentially cause um, laryngeal paralysis. Trauma to the neck or throat can cause this. Now, I'm going to kind of say here, you know, that this is a really, really important part of this because how many of our dogs are being walked on cervical neck leads their entire life. If your dog, and especially large breed dogs, right? And we're seeing this mostly in large breed dogs, older dogs. Imagine a lifetime of having a cervical collar on, a lifetime of of a pronged collar, okay? You have to understand that there are a lot of things in our neck. There are a lot of things in your dog's neck, okay? A lot of very important structures that can get damaged very easily, in addition to having your cervical spine going through your neck, 
you also have, and you know, and, and spinal cord that runs through that cervical spine. I see a lot of animals that come in with severe neck pain, with, with mobility issues, with, with, you know, what I think is damage to the spinal cord or herniated discs or what have you, having difficulty walking, right? That you, what else is in your neck? Your larynx, your thyroid. You know, you have a lot of very important vessels there. You have lymph nodes there. You have, have glands there. I mean, imagine going through your whole life with, with a cervical or neck lead where you're being pulled on walks. Now, if your dog is a puller, I understand the argument. I get that, you know, there are certain dogs that it's very difficult to, uh, walk them without them, without, you know, and, and keep them controlled without being on a certain type of collar. But I encourage you to find other ways. There are some very good harnesses out there that can be helpful. There's also front, front attachment harnesses. Basically, there is, um, there's a, uh, a metal loop in the front where you can attach your leash that will force a a puller to turn around. So it becomes a deterrent. Um, It's something to discuss with your veterinarian or a trainer that can be very, very helpful too. getting a trainer involved, uh, somebody who works with, you know, positive enforcement, hopefully, you know, we don't want negative, you know, reinforcement. We want positive reinforcement. Um, but, you know, just imagine all of the things that we're seeing in our, in our dogs, right? We see a lot of hypothyroidism. Well, that thyroid is sitting in the neck. We're seeing laryngeal paralysis. Well, that larynx is sitting in the neck. Okay. And so, and, and we're seeing a whole bunch of other things. And so I just want to kind of get us, even though we, I understand that, you know, people kind of think that dogs are so rough and tough. They're not. They're not even the, you're, you're the big dogs. You know, I work with a lot of giant breed dogs. It's, they are just as susceptible or vulnerable to injury and tissue injury as you are or I am. And just imagine going through your whole life with a cervical collar. Sometimes it's very tight. I mean, I've had some people, some dogs come to me where I've had to say to their, their parents that this is unacceptable. The dog, it, it, there was, it was so tight and so uncomfortable. You know, we have to think about these things. You know, it hurts them just as it would hurt us. And I, you know, and they might get used to it, but, you know, over time, these are things that can damage the soft tissue structures, you know, under it. If you have a dog that pulls, then I would suggest seeing a trainer who can help you, um, you know, dealing with this issue and finding another way. But the first thing I would do, especially given, given everything that we know that, that is coming from dysfunction in the neck in most, in large breed older dogs, you know, it seems very, it seems like a, a direct piece of this puzzle to me to think of a dog who is, you know, has had a lifetime of this. You know, things go wrong with those structures. The function starts to go, the nerves that are innovating those, those, uh, organs are starting to become uh, dysfunctional. And that makes sense to me. And I'm not saying that that's always the reason, but I think that that's something that we should at least, you know, try to avoid. And if you, you know, and if we have been, you know, walking our dogs on a leash, on a cervical leash all this time, I, I get it. And, you know, I know that that is what has been done in the past, but, you know, time to rethink that and hopefully uh, do something different.
Um, there are certain harnesses that can be used for pulling, you know, dogs that pull with, with front, uh, front connections. Instead of having the leash in the back, it's in the front. Um, and it makes it really difficult and unpleasant to, to, um, uh, pull. And, and I, and I, you know, and whatever you decide to do, please, you know, of course, I know everybody listening to this would always be humane. You know, there's, we don't want things that shock or do anything, you know, unpleasant. It's not, it's, that's not fair to do to an animal. We have to figure out, you know, humane kind ways to, to treat them well and make sure that they're being cared for, which is the whole point of this podcast. Um, okay. So what else causes laryngeal paralysis? Tumors. Tumors or space-occupying lesions in the neck or in the chest area can cause this condition. It can interfere with nerve function, for sure. Endocrine hormonal diseases such as hypothyroidism, how many of our dogs are suffering from hypothyroidism, and Cushing's disease, how many of our dogs are suffering from Cushing's disease? Many, okay? Again, we've, we've talked about this in the past. All of these dysfunctions, I mean, you know, thyroid is in our neck, and, you know, there, this is, you know, again, you know, the cervical collars, I'll stop talking about it in a second, but these cervical collars have been a direct, um, you know, it basically interferes with the functioning of this organ, you know, so that's, that's a form of endocrine disruption in my opinion, right? So those are some of the things, um, they've, they, you know, and if they're not causing them they they seem to be at least associated with the laryngeal paralysis, the, the hypothyroidism and the Cushing's disease. So for those things, treatment, of these disease, you know, you, you, you know, if you have hypothyroidism and you have Cushing's disease, treatment generally does not improve the actual degree of laryngeal paralysis, but it can potentially help with the weakness in the legs. So it is something that, um, you know, if things are corrected, there can be some, um, potential, uh, reversal maybe of at least part of the of the disease uh picture um but the but the laryngeal paralysis itself doesn't seem to re- to reverse with treatment so that's just something to keep in mind um so conservative treatment treatment of laryngeal paralysis is most likely going to require surgery and we'll talk about this in a second um but not everyone is ready or able to provide a serv- a surgical solution to their dog. And hopefully, you know, in these cases, it's, it's mild enough so that, you know, your dog is not, um, you know, having, having difficulty, too much difficulty. If, if they are, then surgery is the, is the best option. If it's very mild, um, you know, potentially you can, you can do some conservative treatment. Like I said, change from a collar to a harness to avoid pressure on the larynx. Avoid heat or other situations where the dog might get, might start to pant. We don't want a lot of panting because that in and out of air can actually cause, um, you know, some, uh, swelling of the tissues, swelling of the arachnoid cartilages. So we really don't want that. Of course, as I said in the beginning, reduce anxiety. We want to make sure that they don't start to panic, right? Um, you know, have some things at home, like some, some anti-anxiety things. If you think that they are getting a little bit too, too, um, a little anxious, maybe you can give them an herbal supplement 
or a trazodone or some other medication prescribed by your veterinarian, it's really important that we don't let that escalate, okay? Reduce activity so that there's not a lot of panting. And as I just mentioned, tranquilizers um, if needed. Okay, so that's some of the stuff that we need to um, do with conservative treatment. But as I said, if they're starting to have trouble breathing, you you have to go straight to the emergency room. And, you know, it, th- that's one of the things you, you don't, if you can't, if they're starting to have, you know, any real problem breathing, you, you know, their respiratory effort is starting to increase. Um, their, their gums are starting to turn, uh, you know, blue. I mean, that is an emergent emergency that is life threatening. I will talk more about that right now. So the crisis, right? Hopefully there is no crisis, but if there is a crisis that can lead to death. And so, you know, this is something that I wanted to talk about because most people don't realize that their dog has this. Most people don't realize that their cat has this. Even, I mean, and I would be very surprised if my cat had it too. So I can understand why, you know, it it can be, the signs can be very subtle. Okay. But even, you know, but if you've noticed a lot of the times I'm asking people, have you noticed a change in bark? And they think for a second, they go, you know, yes, actually I have. If you've noticed any changes in voice, if there's raspy, raspy breathing, remember raspy breathing is, Okay. If you've noticed that, if you have noticed that your dog is panting more, all of the signs, exercise intolerance, all of the signs that we've, we, we mentioned before, having a diagnosis is very, very important. And like I said, most people don't even realize that this is happening until there is a severe crisis. And then you are at, you are really behind the eight ball. You need to always remember, this is the other part of conservative management. You need to know what your plan is. Okay. I've said this in other podcasts, know where your nearest emergency room is, a place where you can go to at two o'clock in the morning, because you can't start fumbling around trying to find a place Some of us that are in big cities, you know, there are a lot of places around. But if you're not in a big city, you need to figure out and chart out your your plan. So that's something that I just want to say again, because that is a part of being prepared is to kind of know where the closest places are, what you're going to do, you know, be ready for this, because these are not things you want to start trying to figure out what to do in the event of a crisis. Okay, now. If laryngeal paralysis is not treated, treated, a respiratory crisis can, can emerge. Now, in most cases, hopefully it's mild. Hopefully this won't happen. But even in the mildest cases, a respiratory crisis can happen. Okay. You can, it can happen, you know, when you're not expecting it. Okay. So. In this situation, the patient is attempting to breathe, your dog, your cat is attempting to breathe and simply can't get air. And that it sounds horrific to me. So, you know, creating a vicious cycle. And then again, here we go with the anxiety and the respite, you know, and the, the attempts at breathing. The, the laryngeal folds are becoming more and more swollen. Okay. And that's part of like why we don't want that anxiety. The anxiety is actually making it worse. It's making the throat obstruction worse. So this is the crisis, right? The patient's, you know, gums are becoming bluish in color. There's a lack of oxygen. 
Okay. And the pay, the pay, I keep saying the patient, but your dog, my patient, your dog or your cat can begin to overheat. That's a part of the, 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 um, the concern. And, and, and I think that that has to do with the, the inability to ventilate. Okay. So with that, with this inability to breathe, you can actually start getting fluid building up in the lungs and you can start to have pulmonary edema and the dog can potentially start to drown. Okay. Now this is a horrible scenario. I know, but I'm just trying to tell you what the crisis is. This is why we need to avoid it. And knowing what to look for and knowing and recognizing when there's trouble before it becomes, you know, so severe and, uh, so, um, dangerous is really the best thing that you can do and the best way to be prepared. If this were to become a crisis, you have to get your dog or your cat to a veterinarian because your dog has to be sedated or your cat has to be sedated. They have to be intubated, meaning a tube needs to be placed into their airway so that they can breathe and they need to be cooled down. And that's the only way they are going to be able to survive. So this is not something that you can do at home. This is not let's wait and see. This is something that has to be addressed immediately with a veterinarian. Okay. So as soon as intubation is in place, the tube is, is in the airway. And now your, your dog or your cat has the ability to breathe again. Thank goodness. Oxygen can be given and the crisis can be dealt with. Okay. And usually what happens is you know, some, some steroids, corticosteroids are given to reduce the swelling. Um, because with all of the attempts at breathing, there's a lot of swelling that builds up in those tissues, a lot of irritation, a lot of swelling, and that has to come down. And ideally, one of several, several sur- uh, surgical solutions is needed. And, you know, this is again, you know, if it's, if it's at that severity, you know, surgical, surgical, uh, solutions may be the only solutions. Okay. The goal of surgery, whichever technique is used, and there's multiple, and I'll, I'll go through some of them. Um, the whole goal, regardless of technique, is to relieve the airway obstruction permanently while maintaining the original function of the larynx, which is to protect the airway, right? And, you know, surgeries have downsides to them. These surgeries are, um, they have some risks to them. So I just want to go through some of it. The most common and, you know, well-known and most commonly done surgery is called the laryngeal tieback. It's also called lateralization surgery. And this is the most common one. Basically what it's doing is it's placing a few sutures and pulling back, um, you know, uh, one of the arytenoid cartilages. It's actually pulling one of the vocal folds out of the way so that there can be um, a, a, an airway, okay? But it's only pulling back one side, right? Now, remember, if you ever looked at your vocal cords, you actually have two vocal cords. This is pulling back one of them, okay? Now, years, and this surgery has been associated with a 14% postoperative mortality, meaning that there's a 14% chance of death from this surgery. And this, this surgery is probably the most successful, 
at least the, the most successful that I know of. Years ago, both, both vocal folds w- were tied back and, um, it created a much larger larynx. It, me- it created a much larger airway, but tying off both caused, um, a 67% mortality rate. And I'll explain to you why in a, in a, in a second, at least one of the reasons why that, why it was, um, you know, associated with such high mortality. Another uh, procedure is called the partial retinoidectomy, and that's just basically cutting out some of the the tissue, creating, um, you know, some more uh, space for the air to flow. But this has a 30% mortality rate in laryngeal paralysis patients. So, um, and there are a couple of others. So, my point is that the the surgery has its, has its risks. But in the face of a dog that's dying, you know, if you have the the ability to do so, um, you know, I I would go with the with the uh, laryngeal tieback, you know, and I think that that would probably be the one that would be offered to you, provided you were in a facility that did these surgeries. Please realize that not every veterinary clinic does these surgeries. So again, you know, know where you know the the places are where they have surgeons that can do things like this. Um, there are obviously some, some, uh, risks involved in these procedures. Um, and there's a lot of post-operative care. One of the biggest issues is that, well, first of all, just some of the post-operative care that I want to mention, um, no swimming ever. Okay. That's what it says. No swimming ever, ever. And I've looked at a number of things. I'm looking at veterinary partner Vin right now, no swimming ever, ever. The patient's airway uh, protection is compromised. You cannot take them swimming when their patient when their airway is compromised. They can't if they have. Uh, this is post-operative, by the way. If they have a a larynx that is literally being held open, that means they can't protect their airway very well, right? So, swimming water can get into their lungs. And they can end up having some pretty serious consequences. Okay. They can end up with water aspiration. Um, you know, some gagging at post-op, some gagging and coughing may be normal during eating and drinking. Um, this actually will get better over time, but, um, you know, dry foods should be avoided always. And I think they should be avoided anyway. You know how I feel about dry food and kibbles. Um, but small meals with, with meatballs are typically fed afterwards. You have to, um, you know, kind of keep them quiet, no barking for a couple of weeks. And sometimes tranquilizers are used for that. So some, some things to keep in mind, if you were to decide to go to surgery, um, you, that, ha- you know, there are some, some things after that. The biggest issue, this is the big issue, okay, is aspiration pneumonia. Once you have these surgical corrections, and I do think that there, the surgical correction is necessary. You, you don't, if, if the, your only choice at survival is a ladder, you know, a laryngeal tieback, then do it if you have the resources to do it. But aspiration pneumonia is the biggest uh, issue, risk factor post-op. So this is something that you have to be aware of, okay? Um, aspiration pneumonia is when the wrong things get into the lungs, your, your, your dog or your cat. You know, they don't have the ability to protect their airway anymore. And so they have, you know, kind of a, an airway that is always somewhat open. And, you know, food can get in there. 
Um, you know, and that becomes very, very dangerous. And 25% of animals that have had, a, you know, the surgical correction of la uh, laryngeal paralysis will develop uh, aspiration pneumonia at some point. Pneumonia is always potentially life-threatening and aspiration pneumonia in particular is very difficult to clear since it involves large contaminated food particles. When you aspirate, you're taking in food into your, into your lungs. So you're, you know, you're trying to clear uh, large contaminated food particles in the lung. And, you know, in many cases, it can be uh, dealt with appropriately and effectively and successfully with broad spectrum antibiotics and fluid therapies and physical therapy. That is actually very important, too. Um, but, you know, it is it is important to realize that the underlying condition that led to the original aspiration pneumonia is likely to produce uh, future episodes. So we sometimes have recurring uh, aspiration pneumonia uh episode. So it is something to realize. So obviously there are a lot of risks involved in the surgery, but it's justified when you're trying to save your dog's life, of course. But you have to realize that post-op, you know, e even though your dog's going to be a lot happier, they're going to be breathing so much better, they're going to be happier, there are going to be uh, lifestyle modifications that have to be made. You know, they're not a regular dog. They have a compromised airway. There are certain things that they can't do anymore. There are different ways that you have to feed them. Um, and of course, you would be counseled all about that. But, you know, when all of a sudden they can breathe better, you know, life, life just got so much, so much better for them. So, you know, this is a surgery that I think is justified. You know, it is life-saving, but it does has, have its risks. So the reason we did this today is because I think that there are a lot of people that have dogs with laryngeal paralysis and probably a kitty here and a kitty there, um, but mostly dogs. You know, there are a lot of people that have dogs with laryngeal paralysis that don't even know it. Unfortunately, laryngeal paralysis is probably much more common than it is diagnosed because as I said earlier... When people come to me because their dog is having trouble getting up or they notice that their legs are weaker, they're having trouble uh, walking, you know, or getting up from laying down or they've noticed that their dog is looking wobbly uh, or, or just sort of drunk when they walk, they're not making the connection that their dog also has a really hoarse sounding voice. Their bark has changed because... To most people, they're thinking those are separate issues. They're not understanding, and understandably so. Who would know that this is actually potentially a part of, you know, a, a much bigger polyneuropathy is what we called it before, polyneuropathy. There are a number of nerves that are being affected that can, you know, affect the esophagus, as we said, can affect the larynx, can affect the legs, you know, the limbs and the mobility of, of your dog or your cat. So, you know, most people are not making the connection. And a lot of people, when their dog is coughing a little bit here or there. That is, that's also another potential sign. Coughing a little bit or has a little bit of a hoarse sounding, uh, uh, pant. Most people are not thinking anything of it. They think, oh, well, they're just old. They might be getting older, but that's not normal, even, you know, for an older dog. That's not normal to, to go from a normal pant to, <sighs> right? That's not normal. 
and or or a uh, you know a change in their voice that's not normal but most people are not making the connection that anything else is going on and so the whole point of today was to get you to start thinking about um you know what's going on here most of my clients have never heard of laryngeal paralysis and so i kind of want to get this out there so that you have heard of laryngeal paralysis just in sum, as we wrap up here, um, it can have an, a later in life onset, a geriatric onset. That's why we call it geriatric onset laryngeal paralysis and polyneuropathy. Um, and that's typically what we see in the older large breed dogs. And the most commonly affected breed is the Labrador retriever. But having said that, it can be any breed and it doesn't even have to necessarily be just a large breed, right? Um, it can happen in, in any breed, but, you know, we most commonly see it in the older large breed dogs and most commonly in Labrador retrievers, but it can also have an early onset. Um, and there seems to be a hereditary form of laryngeal paralysis. Um, and that is, and I'm again, going to butcher the name, the Bouvier de Flandre. They have a hereditary form of laryngeal paralysis, um, that can affect them at a young age. Um, and there, there has also been early onset genetic laryngeal paralysis that has been reported in Siberian Huskies and Great Pyrenees and Bull Terriers and Dalmatians. And so, you know, just in closing, if your dog or your cat or your horse is experiencing any of those things, any respiratory issue needs to be addressed immediately. If there's any distress, that has to be dealt with immediately, of course, right? Any any gasping for air. I mean, I, I don't have to tell you that. Um, but if there's more of a chronic issue that's been going on and it's been causing it, a lot of panting. You're noticing that there's been a lot of panting over the last, you know, recently. Um, you're noticing that, you know, there's exercise intolerance, that there's been a change in bark, the voice change, a change in the meow. Um, you know, if there's been, if the breath sounds have become raspy, that is cause to go to the veterinarian and, and have this looked at. Make sure that you're not dealing with laryngeal paralysis because if you are, there may be things that can potentially help to slow it down. And as far as the weakness in the legs, you know, one of the things I tell people, of course, physical therapy can help with slowing down the progression of the weakness in the legs, yes. But if there's an underlying issue, we need to know what that is. Okay, if there's hypothyroidism that's not being addressed, it has to be addressed. If there is an endocrine issue, Cushing's disease or hypothyroidism, that has to be corrected because if not, then we are really, you know, trying to work against something that is going to be very, very difficult to manage. Okay, so if, if in the case of something like hypothyroidism, which is fairly easy to correct or regulate, I should say, um, it makes therapy a lot more successful. Okay. So I just want to, want to get, you know, get that to be clear. If we're correcting hypothyroidism, for example, it may not correct the, it's not going to correct the LAR part, but it may help with other things like the weakness in the legs.
So anyway, I hope that all of this helps. And I hope that, you know, if you had any questions about this and, and to my, to my wonderful client who asked about this, I hope that this helped and say hello to Alaska for me. <laughs> um, and I hope that you're all having a wonderful, a wonderful summer. I hope it was great. And I hope that this was informative. Um, and I hope that you'll be looking at your dog. If you have an older, an older large breed dog that has a change in their voice, I hope you're going to make an appointment with your vet so that you can have this uh, further worked up. Okay. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.